Hi everyone, I'm Abby and today I'll be doing a Bible reading. Today's Bible reading is from Isaiah chapter 13 verses 1 to 13. Chapter 13 An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop, shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains, like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath, to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Abby, for that Bible reading. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope everyone's staying safe during the lockdown so far. And I just want to start by talking about something that I didn't understand when I was at high school. See, when I was sitting in class, I often wondered what the teacher was saying had to do with anything to do with my life. Uh, one subject in particular that I didn't really get most of all was history. See, to me, history just seemed like we had to memorize a whole bunch of dates, a bunch of countries that I'll never probably ever visit, a bunch of weird names such as kings and generals and so on. See, what was the point of it all? Who cares? And what has this got to do with anything to do with me? And I think sometimes as we read parts of the Bible, we might have similar thoughts. Uh, from chapters 13 to 27 of Isaiah, we suddenly see the focus shift away from God's own people in Judah to the nations around Judah. And so we read about Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Cush, and Egypt. Well, at least we know Egypt, right? But we see we weird names of kings that are hard to pronounce. We read about very specific judgment that God calls upon these ancient nations. Well, what are we to do about this? And what has this got to do with us today? Thousands of years after so many of these nations don't even exist anymore. Because on one level, we kind of know what's happening in these chapters if we do some research. Uh, if we put our historian hats on, we can read about the mighty Assyrians continuing their unrelenting push to conquer more nations, to expand their empire towards the west. And as she sweeps up and down and around the Fertile Crescent, all these nations that we see here are directly in her path of conquest. 
all of them will come under threat. All but one will fall. See, there's a simple explanation for just another blip in another war of human history. But what Isaiah reveals to us here is that these are not simply human events that are happening. But as we have already seen, Yahweh, God, the Holy One of Israel, the Creator of the world, is at work to enact justice in the world. There is a reason behind all this that's happening, and we still need to hear this reason today. And so let us hear what God has to say uh, to these nations around back then, but also to us. And the first words are a word of warning. Raise a banner, chapter 13, verse 2. Raise a banner. A banner is a symbol of an army assembled, ready to attack the enemy. And God's first prophecy against Babylon here is that war is coming. Because do you hear that? Verse 4, from the mountain comes a great multitude, not just the army of one nation, but nations, all nations, amassing together from far away lands, from the ends of heavens. And what will they do? Verse 5, they will destroy the whole country. And in the face of this destruction, there is only one response. Verse 6, wail. Wail. God is bringing this about. There is no escape. God is bringing this about, and His wrath, His punishment is absolutely terrifying. And what is the first sign that this is God's work and not just another human war on the vast timeline of history? Verse 10. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. These events of cosmic proportions is a sign that something far more significant is going on. Creation itself is dimming at the prospect of what God is bringing. And why? What is happening here? Well, God has had enough. He's angry. Verses 11 to 12. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. God is angry because of evil, because of its wickedness and because of their sin. In particular, God is going to deal with the arrogance of Babylon. God is going to humble the proud. But did you notice here that God is punishing the arrogance of not just Babylon, but the world? I thought God was meant to be talking about Babylon here. Why is he punishing the whole world for its evil? Well, I think what's happening here is that Babylon is used as a symbol to represent something far more universal. See, the word here used to describe Babylon is actually the same word Babel that we see in Genesis. So you remember Genesis 11? What happened at the city of Babel? Mankind united to build a tower. A tower that reaches up to the heavens. A tower to make a name for themselves. A tower so that they would not be scattered across the world. And if we know Genesis, then this is the exact opposite of what God had planned for his people. Those who were made in his image to do. To sit under God's rule, not to to make it to heaven by their own efforts. To make God's name great. That's what they were supposed to do. 
to make God's fame spread around the world, not their own, to multiply and fill the earth, not stay in one place. And so Babel then stood as the epitome of human rebellion against God. And as we continue reading through the rest of this section, the rebellion that we read of here in, in Babylon or Babel, well, that stands true for all the nations that God is talking about. The condemnation of Babylon stands as a synopsis, a foretaste of the condemnation for the world. And so in the next section, and we'll just pick a couple of these nations to look at. But let's look at what God calls out for each of these nations. Let's see how God will specifically punish each nation as a clue to understand why judgment is coming in the first place. Let's start with Philistia. This people of Philistia, there was there were those who had constantly led God's people astray because of their false gods and idols. And God's message to her is this. Verse 29, don't rejoice. Don't rejoice. Why are they rejoicing in the first place? Well, in verse 29, we're told that the rod that struck them had been broken. And this prophecy came in the year that King Ahaz died. Now, you might have expected that the broken rod spoken about here must be King Ahaz, right? But actually, it's talking about the king of Assyria, King Tiglath-Pileser III, who also died during the same time. See, Philistia were enemies with Assyria, and so with the death of their enemy king, that's great news, right? But God tells them that they should be wailing and howling instead, verse 31. Why? Because someone worse is about to come up and take the place of the previous king. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting venomous serpent. And as a result, see what's coming. A cloud of smoke from the relentless destruction of the Assyrians is coming closer and closer and there's nothing you can do about it. Only your destruction awaits you now. So God's message to Philistia is that they had to wail, cry, and howl. They thought they could rejoice because of the death of their enemy, but they will face another enemy far worse. That's the message to Philistia. Next up we have Moab, and it doesn't get any better. Ah is ruined, destroyed in a night. Ker, the capital of Moab, is ruined, destroyed in a night. And it's not even a fair contest. It's all over before it's begun. And again, this, this is the result of this destruction. The result of this destruction is utter despair and devastation. Wailing, shaved heads and beards, a symbol of the humili humiliation of those who have been defeated. S sackcloth and weeping, a, a symbol of mourning. Even the armed soldiers, all that they can do is cry out with despair. And it goes on. As these Moabites, they flee to the hills for refuge, as they lament the utter devastation of all their agriculture, their farming, their, all the livelihoods that they depended on, they try to take their worldly possessions into the wilderness with them, into the ravine of the poplars. Yes, God says, cry about your treasured fields and lands. Try and flee with your, your treasured wealth. See what good they will do for you in the wilderness. Next up, we've got Damascus. 
But when you read on, you realize this prophecy isn't just about Syria or Aram or Damascus, but it actually includes the northern kingdom of Israel as well. Because Israel and Damascus or Syria, they've allied um, themselves against God's people in the south. And it's a similar picture, a bleak one. Damascus will be a heap of ruins, verse 1. All the fortified cities from Ephraim will be gone, verse 3. Like a tree that we've had all its fruits shaken off, leaving only a small insignificant remnant too meaningless to worry about. That's how the people of Aram and Ephraim will be like after the coming judgment. And there's a clear reason this time about why this is happening, particularly to Ephraim. Verse 10. You have forgotten your God. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Ephraim were once God's people. They knew God. But they quickly forgot God and turned to other gods instead. God was their true rock, their true security. But instead, they looked for security in other places. Making allies with the nations around them. Bowing down to their allies' gods instead of the true God. And finally, let's look at Egypt, chapter 19. And what does God first speak to when he addresses Egypt? Her multitude of idols and false gods that she's worshipped, says she worships. See, all Egypt's so-called gods, they were supposed to protect Egypt and her prosperity, right? Each god had a specific area they specialized in to protect that area of life for the Egyptians. But as Yahweh, God, rides on a swift cloud, right? God is mobile. He is the God who created the whole earth. He isn't just stationary in Israel, unlike the gods of Egypt. And so as Yahweh comes, these idols, far from saving the Egyptians and protecting them, these idols and gods tremble before the Almighty God, utterly useless against the one who has true power. And what will Egypt's gods fail to protect against? Well, we'll see three things that will be taken away from Egypt. Three things that they prided themselves in the most. And the first is political. See, Egypt had grand plans for their political power. They believed that they could eventually control the world. But this hope is dashed because they won't even be able to manage the political affairs within their own borders they will descend into civil war. Brother will fight against brother, verse 2. Neighbor against neighbor, city against city. And indeed, in 715 BC, the civil war ends when an Ethiopian, Shakabar, takes control of Egypt. The fierce king, in verse 4, will rule over them, just as God had predicted. The second security of Egypt was their strong economy. If national GDP was measured all the way back then, then Egypt would be right up there at the top. And her Nile River was the backbone of that economic strength. It provided this massive fertile delta to grow crops and plants. It provided all these fish and the reeds and the flax were used to make Egypt's world-renowned goods. But all these things will be taken away when a drought will come to hit them. The river will stink of dead, rotting fish. Their reeds will wither and die. All their fertile fields will be parched and no longer yield any crops for them. All the fishermen will cast hooks and throw nets in vain. 
and as mass unemployment hits, all her workers will despair. And finally, Egypt's famous wise men will fail her. In the ancient world, Egypt was, was known for her wisdom. She was renowned for the counsel of her wise men and her sorcerers. I mean, after all, she'd been a superpower for so many years, so many centuries. But this is God's verdict on these so-called wise men. They have become fools. They are deceived. They have led Egypt astray. God has made them drunk. See, in the face of God's coming judgment, Egypt's many false gods are powerless. Egypt's countless wise men offer nothing but foolish talk. This nation who was so good at planning can do nothing in the face of what God is planning against them in verse 17. Because unlike Egypt, God's plans happen. Now what have we seen so far? Philistia's celebration of this enemy king will instead bring her to ruin. Moab's arrogance is laid out as she trusts in her own false gods in her temples instead of Yahweh. And she, as she latches onto her wealth as she flees, Damascus and Ephraim put their trust in politics and alliances instead of God, and they too will be ruined. Egypt can do nothing to see her economic strength, political stability, and human wisdom come to be completely stripped away from her. How's that for a friendly way to introduce your neighbours to your God? But getting back to our original question, what does all this have to do with us? I mean, Isaiah was primarily written to God's people in Judah, so why even include all these prophecies against these nations for Judah? Well, I think the first reason God gives us these words is this, and that is we need to see the reality of a rejection of God. We need to see the reality of the rejection of God. See, as we look out into our world, the state of our neighbors near and far, well, God's verdict actually hasn't changed that much from what we've read, is it? We see a world either in denial of their creator or outright opposing him. We see a world who puts their trust, their hopes and dreams, their joy in all the things that God has exposed as ultimately useless here. Be it politics, the state of the economy, the wisdom of the world, whatever it might be. That those who don't follow God, be it nations or individuals, whatever it is that causes them to ultimately pursue and to bow down to these things instead of God, as God deserves. Look, look at them and see where trusting in these things ultimately leads to. So this is a serious warning for God's own people. Because when we look out into the world and see all those shiny, impressive things of the world, there is a real temptation to also chase after these things for our sense of value and security. To subtly leave God behind as we find our security through worldly means. For Judah, the temptation was to try and make the right alliances for security. That nation has a strong economy. That nation has military power. That nation has the right networks and relationships that I can hook into. But for us, the same things those around us depend on can also tempt us to trust solely in what they hold out as sources of security and tempt us into th to forgetting God, our Maker. 
in our Q&A session last Sunday. We mentioned that when it comes to using tools to improve our, our lives or our standard of living, whether it be taking medication for our physical or mental health or stuff like listening to wise advice on how to live, ultimately the issue isn't whether these things are in and of themselves bad or not, but rather it's about whether there is danger when we rely and trust in these things more than we trust in God. Or we trust in these things in a way that makes us think that we don't need God anymore. Because hear the heart of God's condemnation upon these nations here. The root of sin here is one of self-sufficient arrogancy. We don't need God. We have our own solutions. We have our own way of securing our future. And that same risk is ever present in our own lives. As we read these passages, just see how quickly these things can be taken away. Look at the, look at the Philistines, Moab, Egypt back then. See where they, they all ended up. And make sure you keep trusting in God. Pray to God. Know that God is the one who truly secures our future, whether through these ordinary means or otherwise. Now, having read, read this entire section and having read about the judgment falling on all these nations who have turned away from God, hearing of God's anger, His wrath over and over again, it, it might be tempted, tempting to question God's character here. And it's passages like these ones that we've read that lead to some to make comments like, oh, the God of the Old Testament is too harsh. He's not loving like Jesus. Now, in pre previous sermons, we've already seen how God's holiness and justice demands just punishment when His people reject God and His righteous ways. We've seen that we don't actually want a God that doesn't care about right or wrong, who just lets us do whatever we think is right or wrong. Right? We care about justice. We want evil to be punished. But today, I just want to stop and think about what else we see in these passages. And that is, amidst all the wailing and lamenting coming out of these judgments that God calls the nations to do, there's actually someone else who does some warning here. God's own heart cries out. Not just because his people have rejected him and sinned against him. Yes, God grieves when his image bearers choose to reject him. But here... God is crying out because of the terror that Moab is about to face. As they flee, as they weep and lament their own destruction, God cares deeply when humanity groan and suffer. Even if it is a suffering that is well deserved. But there's not only just anguish here though. Because God reaches out and offers Moab a chance for salvation. Have a look at 16 verse 1 here. God urges Moab to send lambs as a tribute, send gifts to Jerusalem, the home of God's people. Why? Verse 4. Because Jerusalem can be a shelter for you. God foretells that the Assyrian Empire, it won't last much longer, and there is a place where you can be kept safe just in time. Because, verse 5, someone is coming to Jerusalem, who will rule as a king from the line of David, who will rule with justice and righteousness, which will bring God's protection and salvation. Last week, we heard from Pastor Iggy 
that King Hezekiah was spoken about in vague terms in the prophecies of Isaiah 7 to 9. 7 to 9. A child will grow up in the line of David, choosing right over wrong, delivering God's people from her enemies, ruling from his throne with justice and righteousness. And we'll see in later chapters that King Hezekiah's faith will have him stand firm and save Jerusalem. And so now this message to Moab is inviting them in to come, come under the safety and security of God's king. Send tribute to Zion. Come under the protection of God by trusting his God, by trusting God and his king. But guess what Moab decides to do? Verse 6. They arrogantly reject his offer of grace. She's too proud, too boastful. Maybe they're thinking, why am I going to trust in your puny God, you tiny, insignificant city of Jerusalem? Come on. There's so many other things to trust in out there. But the thing to note here is that even in the face of Moab's rejection of God's offer of grace and protection, once again, God's heart pours out with grief over the destruction that awaits Moab. God weeps for the vines of Sibmah. God's tears drench Heshbon and Eliah. As joy and gladness are taken away from the nation, so too... God's heart laments for Moab in verses 10 to 11. And this is the second thing we need to learn from these passages today, is that as God's people, we too need to lament over the state of the world that we live in. That's God's heart. We should be groaning for the state of sin, the state of rebellion against God, but also mourn the outcome that awaits the world if it doesn't repent. D.L. Moody famously said, No one should ever preach on the topic of hell without a tear in his eye. And that's just so clear in God's own message to the nations around Judah, isn't it? Yes, we need to warn against sin. We need to preach about the danger of not repenting. And yes, the coming judgment to come is deserved. But as we preach this message to the world, warning them, it's never to be done with judgmentalism a sense of righteous superiority. We never warn of the dangers of hell without feeling a sense of gut-wrenching pain deep down ourselves for the world out there. When was the last time you shed a tear for the world's rejection of God? I have to admit when I was prepping the sermon that the last time I had done that was many, many years ago. And that was when someone very close to me, someone in my own family, refused the offer. And what God's word is telling me today is that I need to spend more time to reflect on the serious seriousness of sin. I need more time to reflect on the reality of hell for so many in our world in a way that really should grip our hearts to mourn. But wonderfully, in these warnings to the nations, we don't just see God's sorrow and his grief in their destruction. Because Isaiah also reveals hope for them. God reveals his plan to transform the nation spectacularly. First, let's look at the future of Egypt. Chapter 19, verse 18. Egypt will one day swear allegiance to Yahweh, and not just in name, but in deed as well. Verse 19, there will be an altar to the Lord right in the center of Egypt. 
And when they cry out to God, God would send them a saviour, a defender, and rescue them. God will make himself known to the Egyptians, verse 21. They will worship and sacrifice and offer grain offerings to God. They will make vows to God and keep them. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of the original people of God who received these prophecies firsthand, these descriptions should utterly shock us. Because how is Egypt being described here? It's not just that God will have favour on them, but they are being pictured as the very people of God, as Israel themselves, God's treasured possession out of all the earth. Now, it would have been shocking for God to describe any other nation like this, given the special privilege that Israel knew that they had as God's chosen people. But Egypt, a nation who had oppressed Israel with such harsh slavery that we read in in Exodus, the nation which repeatedly was a source of temptation for God's people and whom God had warned Israel against. It would have been unthinkable. And before we even have time to process that, there's more. Verses 23 to 25. Egypt and the Assyrians now will worship together. Even Assyria. The other looming threat upon God's people. The nation who, you, who would eventually decimate the northern kingdom of Israel. The nation who almost destroyed Judah. And the climax of all this? Egypt and Assyria will join Israel as being those who would bless the earth. Egypt and Assyria will join Israel as those who will receive God's special blessing to be his people, his handiwork, and his inheritance. Those wonderful promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that will be through Abraham's descendants that the world will be blessed. Now Egypt and Assyria, the most unexpected nations, will now be part of that promise. Assyria to Egypt... They represent the, the, the ends of the earth as far as God's people were concerned back then. I think it's in a way it's saying Assyria to Egypt and everything in between, the whole earth. They will all get take part in being privileged people of God, chosen and loved. And as shocking as that would have been even to imagine over 2,000 years ago, We're already living in this right now. At the very least, we've seen the beginnings of this unfold. As Jesus has broken down the barrier of hostility between Jews and non-Jews, as Jesus presents himself as the perfect sacrifice to make everyone acceptable to God, everyone and anyone who would accept this gift and accept Jesus as their King and their Savior. And so on this side of the cross, Let us read these passages and go on and take part in God's mission to see the ends of the earth come to Christ. And we can take part in God's mission right here on the south side of Brisbane. Even if we're in lockdown or whether we're out of lockdown soon, one of the things that we hope for every follower of Christ in our church is that we be regularly praying for our friends who don't follow Jesus yet. Maybe one or two friends that we might be praying for them, praying for opportunities to share Christ with them and maybe invite them to church. But today, maybe as a first step after our sermon today, how about we just spend some time thinking about our closest friends who don't have the hope of the gospel? As you read this passage, will you mourn with God? Will you grieve at even the thought 
of them facing God's judgment if they don't turn to Jesus. And may that drive us, may that lamenting drive us to pray boldly for our friends and our family. And that may help us to go out and spread the message of hope for the world around us, that they might escape the fate of Isaiah 13 to 27, allowing Christ to take that fate away for them on that cross, to put their trust in the true King David, who rules in righteousness, to put their trust in, in God who truly secures not just their lives here on earth, but for eternity. So this morning as we close, why don't we spend a minute now to do that, to, to mourn, to remind ourselves of that reality of our friends and family who don't yet know Christ. And after we do that, let us pray to our Heavenly Father to use us to see the ends of the earth transformed for His glory starting here. I'll just give us a minute to do that, just quietly by ourselves. And then I'll close in prayer. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of justice, that you care deeply about righteousness and, uh, and that you care about the world coming to you, the true God, and worshipping you and giving you glory. And Lord, as the images that we have read today shock us, and should make us mourn and weep. We pray that we, we would do that, that we won't be callous as we read this and, and not care about the state of those around us, but help us to have your heart, your heart of love and compassion and concern for those around us. And Father, we pray that you would move us to action, that not only have we chosen to, to receive Christ into our lives, and receive salvation and eternal life with you, as wonderful as that is. But help us then to now go out and share that good news, to see the world transformed for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.